Welcome to this podcast from the October 26, 2009 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the second session titled Opportunities and Threats, Preserving Educational Values in an Increasingly Commercial Landscape for College Sports. Knight Commission Co-Chairman William Britt Kerwin, Chancellor of the University System of Maryland, provides the introduction for this second session. The podcast runs approximately one hour and 29 minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. Presidents and other education leaders individually and collectively can play in addressing what has been deemed the unsustainability of the current fiscal model for intercollegiate athletics. The focus uh, for the session uh, is the uh, two reports that uh, we had a chance to discuss earlier this morning, the presidential survey and the uh, commission's College Sports 101. What we've uh, learned from these two uh, reports is uh, very troubling. For example, we've learned that the gap between athletic programs with uh, the big revenues uh, and the uh, programs at the other end of the economic spectrum, this gap is enormous. Uh, According to 2007 data, uh, some of the richest programs are generating 14 times as much revenue as programs at the other end of the spectrum in Division 1A. Costs in intercollegiate athletics, uh, as I noted just a few moments ago, have been rising by a factor three or four times faster than other areas of university operations. Uh, And in the most recent NCAA study on revenues and expenses, uh, 25 football, uh, the Division 1A programs reported an operating surplus that averaged $4 million. That's 25 out of 120. The other other programs in the Division 1A, 94 programs, ran deficits ranging, uh, deficits averaging about $10 million. So roughly 80% of the programs have an average deficit of uh, $10 million, which uh, of course, is a, is, a, is a major area of concern. Uh, we have a panel of experts with us uh, today who can help us think through these uh, issues, so I'm going to uh, introduce them very quickly, and they will speak uh, for eight minutes or so in order uh, of introduction, and then we'll engage them in conversation. We're going to start with uh, an individual who's well-known to all of us, uh, Peter Likens. He's been a member of the uh, commission. Um, He served as president of Arizona uh, University from 1997 until his retirement in 2006. Well, I shouldn't say retirement, his uh, promotion to faculty status again uh, at the university. Um, Peter is actually uh, a very important person to be talking with us today because he, he, he chaired the NCAA's presidential task force on the future of uh, of intercollegiate athletics, and and in particular, chaired the task force on fiscal responsibility. So, he is uh, really responsible for setting the the stage for the financial data uh, reporting that we have. 
Um, prior to being president at University of Arizona, he was president of uh, Lehigh University. He was a student athlete and uh, has been recognized by the National Wrestling Hall of Fame um, uh, for his exploits as a uh, wrestler. Uh, we also have with, with us uh, Dutch Balkman, who's the executive director of the Division I-A Athletic Directors Association. Uh, his uh, report was uh, referred to by Gene Smith uh, earlier today. Uh, Dutch is the, is, um, uh, he's been a longtime ath uh, athletic administrator, college athletic administrator over quite a few decades. He has served uh, Oregon State, Virginia Tech, and Furman. Uh, Jim Delaney uh, is commissioner of the Big Ten. Uh, he's been that since uh, 1989. Uh, he has uh, been responsible for many innovative practices in intercollegiate athletics in his position uh, leading the Big Ten. Um, prior to uh, the Big Ten, he served as commissioner of the Ohio Valley Conference um, and uh, was a, a standout star basketball player at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And then finally, we have Neil Pilson, who's the former president of CBS Sports. Neil has been recognized as one of the top 20 most influential media executives by Sports Business Journal. And he, in fact, was responsible for the uh, one of the original uh, multi-billion dollar uh, CBS agreements with the NCAA for the uh, 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 March Madness uh, basketball tournament. So uh, we are very fortunate to have these four individuals with us today, and we will uh, hear first from Peter. Thanks, Brett. The, the title of the session in your program is not Intercollegiate Athletics Finance. The title is Preserving Educational Values in a culture that is increasingly commercial, in a commercial landscape for college sports. And let's hang on to that. We're going to talk about money. We've been talking about money. We're going to continue to talk about money because you have to understand that commercial landscape. But let's remember, please, that it's preserving educational values that is our real goal here. That's what we owe our students, is an opportunity to learn beyond the skills of their sport. Now, let's talk just a bit about those, uh, the culture of commercialization that is driving intercollegiate athletics today, and realize that Frankly, universities are increasingly commercial in their behavior. The entrepreneurs are not just in the athletics department. Presidents are entrepreneurs today. And in fact, that's being driven by much more powerful forces. We are increasingly a market-based culture in America, and our success, success of our economy, is driving the world this way. So let's not imagine that we can reverse that tide in the context of intercollegiate athletics we must perhaps observe a recession of that tide. That is to say, it may be that society as a whole will not in, indefinitely become more market-driven, but we can't stop that right here. So we have, I think, two tasks. Uh, we, today, but we in intercollegiate athletics, we have to 
look for ways to preserve educational values within the current business model. And then we have to recognize that that model will collapse. The current business model is not sustainable. It will end, and we have to be prepared for that. We have to try to take actions today that minimize the damage that will occur when that business model begins to break down. So firstly, we should, we should talk today and, and in, in all of our discussions of this kind about what may seem to be incremental changes, the, the adjustments we can make within the current business model without trying to stop that tide from sweeping across our, our uh, populations in intercollegiate athletics and in the university. And there are lots of things we can do. Uh, and we can talk about some of them in, in detail. We heard some examples. We'll hear more examples today. Lots of things we can do that are incremental in character that help us cope with the commercial landscape in which we now live. I think it's helpful to classify those actions by actor. That is to say, to make a list of things that can be done by individual institutions things that must be done at the conference level, things that must be done, can be done at the NCAA level, and then recognize that there are things that can be done at the level of government, whether it's Congress or the courts. They may not all be good things, but they're things that can be done at that level. And if we look at the whole list of, of actions that can be taken throughout this panorama of players, then we try to decide not what can happen, but what should happen. And we try to focus our energies on accomplishing positive changes within this cultural context. But now let's get to the second theme. And that is, how do we prepare ourselves for that day when the current trends begin to break down? All markets change, markets are dynamic by nature, and we cannot imagine an indefinite continuation of the patterns you've heard, uh, heard described. That is the, the notion that the athletics expenditures are three or four times as, as, as uh, rapidly changing as the expenditures for the parent universities. The notions that the disparity between the, the most prosperous and the least prosperous within the, the football bowl series uh, will grow indefinitely at an increasingly rapid rate. That's the very definition of instability, the notion of coaches' salaries growing exponentially, or more importantly, in my opinion, capital expenditures growing increasingly as larger and larger fractions of, of university athletics debt service budgets. The notion that the allocated funds that go into university athletics operations are growing more rapidly than the funds generated by the athletics department, that's not sustainable either. There's so many ways in which we can clearly demonstrate that there, we cannot sustain current statistical patterns for the system indefinitely. Now, you may feel that in certain institutions, you can sustain the patterns of the recent past indefinitely. You see no end to it, but the current system as a whole, is going to break down. And no institution can maintain its patterns if it loses the context in which it's competing athletically. 
So the question is not whether current trends will end, but when we'll begin to see the evidence of that breakdown and how that breakdown will manifest itself and how we might attempt to anticipate that shift in this, the business model of intercollegiate athletics and protect ourselves from damage that will otherwise occur if we're not careful in anticipating that breakdown. Let's understand that if the, if the current trends are sustainable for 10 years, I mean, ultimately they'll break down, but sustainable for 10 years, nothing's gonna happen because presidents and chancellors and boards of trustees and athletic directors do not have a time horizon that exceeds 10 years. They're desperately trying to solve more pressing problems. So the time horizon of this breakdown of the system is critical to, to try to understand and to realize that unless there are precipitating events that make presidents and boards and, and ADs uh, react to a sense, with a sense of crisis within the next year or three or five years, unless there are cracks in the edifice, there will not be dramatic change. There will be incremental change of the sort I've described earlier, but no transformational change of the business model of intercollegiate athletics. So we may not see it in the next five years. It may not happen in the next five years, but it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen at some point. Now the critical question is, how is that breakdown gonna manifest itself? It can be incremental. One institution drops one sport or another institution drops another. Maybe it's football, maybe it's Olympic sports. Little by little, the system begins to adjust, or it can be catastrophic. It can be an adjustment that is cataclysmic, that really causes all of us to be shaken to our, our roots by sudden and dramatic change. Normally, complex systems change through a combination of those two kinds of change. It's incremental, initially, a breakdown here, somebody drops football, somebody, maybe a conference drops out of the football bowl subdivision, a piece at a time, but then there's a tipping point at which everybody begins to move and then, then you can expect very, very rapid change. And so you have to guard, I think, if you're running an institution or if you care about an institution, you have to guard against vulnerability to sudden change and you have to be very perceptive to see when individual actions begin to accumulate to a tipping point. For one, one business advice I would offer to anybody who's trying to guard against being caught in that moment when things change rapidly is do not monetize future revenues in an unstable market. Any business person understands that. You don't spend today what you anticipate receiving in future revenues. You don't commit, for example, to debt service. That's a 20-year payback. When, when you're counting on future revenues, to meet, to meet those debt payments. That, that is bad business. And in a business model, you just better not do that because you may not be able at some later time to adjust rapidly enough. Now, all of this sounds abstract, I'm afraid. And let me, let me suggest that it would be healthy for all of us to go through um, kind of a mental exercise exploring breakdown scenarios 
if the current business model is going to change, how might it change? Again, incrementally or, or uh, catastrophically or through some combination. And what might evolve from that? And this is not, not to pretend to have a crystal ball. None of us has the ability to actually see what, what, what this system will be like in 15 or 20 years. But we should at least play out in our minds possibilities. And so one thought I would suggest as I leave you is that you can imagine, I can imagine just as a kind of a mental exercise, a circumstance in which more and more schools find they cannot stay with the, the football bowl subdivision and drop out, conferences drop out. So now maybe we're down to 60 members instead of 120. And they're successful and they're doing fine financially and that may seem in the business model to be a, a natural outcome. The weak fail, don't survive, the strong prevail. But do remember the government. And if Congress or the courts decide that this is now a business and this is unrelated business income, it's taxable, contributions are not tax exempt, the whole world changes. So we could reach a point at which we seem to be succeeding and then government interferes, intervenes, seeking an exemption from the Sherman antitrust laws is probably an invitation to a deeper intervention by government. I think we should be very cautious about that. Now, I'm not predicting that. I'm not saying that's gonna happen, but I am saying we should go through the mental exercise of exploring alternative scenarios that are not all uh, very promising. Thank you. Peter, thank you. Dr. Kerwin, Dr. Turner, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you today. We appreciate this. Would also like to thank Amy Perko and Ted Leland for attending our recent annual meeting where they hosted a very important session where they presented the questions, similar questions that were asked of university presidents recently <clears throat> to our group, which was comprised of Division I athletic directors and Division I FARs in an attempt to gather data that might uh, be used in a comparison with the data collected by the presidents, and we appreciate that opportunity. Also, congratulations on your 20th anniversary. Preserving educational values in an increasingly commercial landscape for college sports clearly appears to be a conflict in terms here, but I learned after reading a very valuable book years ago about the proposition of the ore and that the enduring companies and those companies that have been most successful were those that realized you can preserve core values and stimulate progress at the same time. And while these notions here appear to be conflicting, uh, we look at those as a proposition of the end in that we must preserve our core values and we must stimulate progress at the same time. We've noticed with regard to the current economic trends, <clears throat> some uh, very alarming data with regard to compensation within Division 1A. We administer an annual compensation survey that identifies 159 different positions within an athletics department. And that survey asks athletic directors to respond with very specific compensation data. 
as it pertains to those positions they have within their own department. The final report we generate is over 300 pages long, so obviously it's very comprehensive. I looked at the trends that we've seen since, since the year 2000. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the year 2000, I took the highest compensation for an athletics director and the lowest compensation for an athletics director and created $25,000 incremental steps between the two. Then I charted that data. Classic bell-shaped curve. Then I looked at the year 2009. Oh, I should mention, in the year 2000, there were 10 incremental steps between the highest and the lowest compensation. Then I looked at the year 2009. Took the highest, took the lowest, made those same $25,000 incremental steps between the two. And in the year 2000, we had 10 steps. In the year 2009, we have 22 steps. There is still a bell-shaped curve. Did the same kind of thing with coach compensation, found the same kind of information. We wanted to apply the same formula to operating budgets, but we find it very difficult in practicality to do that because there are so many moving parts within operating budgets, it's very, very difficult to find a cohort of institutions where you can identify very specific operational budget elements that would be the same. For example, at one institution, an athletics department might have to pay for their fields to be prepared for competition. At another institution, that's not the case many differences as it pertains to grant and aid and scholarship aid to student athletes from one institution to the next. So we've, we've taken this notion of preserving core values and stimulating progress very seriously. Uh, not only as an association, but in how we look at the current economic challenges. As an association, as we've looked over these past years, at the challenges we face in intercollegiate athletics, we have not lost sight of the values. And foremost among those is the welfare of the student athlete. In the year about, about 1990, we created the CHAMPS program, which was really the first time that the student athlete experience was clearly defined. We set a group of standards whereby institutions had to strive to meet those standards in order to benefit the welfare of their student athletes. We also did a very similar kind of thing just a few years ago in creating a minority coach hiring program where we faced the challenges that we saw in front of us preserving our core values and we've made a difference in that area now too. <clears throat> but this situation we face today is yet a little bit different in that over the years we all have been familiar with attempts within the NCAA to study what's been referred to as cost containment. What we see with, uh, in front of us today is much more serious than that. And over the past year, we have met with different groups within Division 1A and asked ourselves a basic question. Can we continue to do business the way we have always done business? This is much more serious in cost containment. We're looking at methodologies. We're looking at how we do business in Division 1A in light of the serious economic consequences that are on the horizon. Another basic premise is we don't want to wait for that breakdown 
that President Likens refers to. No doubt, I agree with everything he said. But we want to be a little more proactive. As a profession, we want to be out in front of this. So as I look in the report here, I, I, I noticed with interest that there was a, a statement there declaring, the commission here declaring success in creating a governance structure whereby presidents are now in charge. Well, presidents have always been in charge. But I also found it interesting in this very same document to read a statement that said, in some, presidents would like serious change but don't see themselves as the force for the changes needed nor have they identified an alternative force they believe could be effective. Well, today I've got some good news for you. The Division I-A Athletic Directors Association has already started this process. We've already begun a process over this past year, and we are here today to share some of that information with you. It's still much work to be done, but we would like to formally suggest that our association, along with this commission, along with the NCAA, and most importantly, probably, along with the Division I-A commissioners, work together to pursue the recommendations and guidelines that we've already identified for the sake of preserving our core values, but stimulating progress in a way that maybe we need to look at how we do business in intercollegiate athletics in Division I-A. I would want to emphasize for you today, though, that this is just the beginning uh, I would not suggest seven recommendations here today as the end all. This is just the beginning. There's much more work to be done. For example, we've identified over 25 very specific issues that all pertain directly to the economic challenges we face today. One more radical notion might be, what if we redefine the model for football? What if we redefine the model for basketball? What if we really pay attention to what Cedric said about a federated concept? What if instead of a foot football model in Division I-A, the 1-9 model that we all understand today, what if our model was 1-9-15, some number? As a profession, we've identified one of the great challenges we have, one of the problems we have, is the proliferation of support personnel in our sports, and in particular, football and basketball. I can remember sitting in a conference meeting with ADs, and somebody said, what are you all going to do with this videographer position that we're looking at today? The rest of us said, what's a videographer? Now we look around the country, and we see institutions that have a staff of videographers. So there's clearly been a proliferation, but it hasn't necessarily been in the coaching ranks, but it has been directly linked to sports. So what if this model was 1-9-15? And that 15 identified permissible support personnel. That's pretty radical thinking. I'd like to be able to recommend that here today, but I'm not, because we clearly respect the AFCA, NABC, WBCA, and that those kinds of considerations must be done with discussion and further study with many more people. But we will, we will lead the way with that. We do have seven very specific recommendations. I'll meet in a couple weeks with folks at the NCAA as we move this forward. I'll meet in November, December time frame with the 1A commissioners to move these forward. But the way we approached this was there's so much to consider 
there's so much that impacts the economic prowess of an athletics department, of an institution. It wouldn't be likely to get our arms around all of it right now. So what if we identified what we would refer to as the low-hanging fruit? What if we identified those things that we think we can deal with right now, not wait for the breakdown, get ahead of this? We can identify these things right now and do one of two things. Either agree to, to adopt them as the way we do business in Division 1A, or perhaps at the same time let them rise to the level of legislation. Very quickly, I'll mention what those seven items are. Number one, create a sport-by-sport -sport squad limit for team travel. Number two, eliminate non-traditional seasons of competition. Number three, eliminate all foreign travel. Number four, create limitations on the allowable number of sports-specific administrative support personnel by sport. Number five, elimination of micro-websites. Editorial note, what we're seeing evolve right now is a micro-website. What that means is within an institution, an athletics department will have their own website. Clearly on that website, there would be links from that website to all of the sport programs hosted by that institution. What we're seeing right now is the development of websites by a particular sport program outside of what's going on within the athletics department. That requires funding, that requires cost, expense to make that happen, to be maintained and so forth. Number six, no off-campus housing prior to a home athletic contest. Number seven, reduction in the number of permissible regular season contests. We are prepared to move these forward. As I mentioned, we will, we've already established meeting time in a couple weeks with NCAA. We will be meeting with the uh, 1A commissioners very soon to uh, move this forward. Thank Dutch, you, sir. Dutch, thank you very much. Uh, Jim? Thank you, Britt. <clears throat> it's uh, nice to be here. Uh, I know many of you from uh, various um, fun experiences that we've all had over the years, whether it's Big Ten or Pac-10 or BCS or NCAA or uh, television, it's, uh, it's good to see everybody. And um, you know, I want to congratulate the commission. I, I think that the template that it outlined 20 years ago has been an important conceptual way of, of looking at the enterprise of intercollegiate athletics. Uh, prior to that, uh, we didn't have a template. And so I think by providing that template, um, you know, we've really been able to make some progress. Um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about uh, context as well as perspective. Uh, in 1989, we were only five years removed from uh, an antitrust lawsuit brought by presidents and boards of trustees of major institutions in this country against the NCAA. If you remember, at the time, the NCAA managed college football television. And in a Supreme Court decision, that was taken away, uh, that, that control was taken away from colleges. At the time, uh, exposure was limited, money was shared, and appearances uh, were divvied out among uh, haves and have-nots. Uh, but Neil will tell you that basically the networks were paying for the haves. So we destroyed that ourselves. 
the, the net outcome of that was somebody, uh, television didn't go away and technology didn't stop advancing. So the net net of that was some organizations, whether it was the Pac-10, the Big Ten, the CFA, Notre Dame, or the SEC, be, uh, became recipients of the responsibility to market on behalf of the institutions in the television environment. I think it's also important to note that 17 years or so before uh, this commission came into effect, Title IX passed. But very little happened in the 70s and 80s. Since 1989, a great deal has, has, uh, has happened in this area. As an example, I was hired in 1989 by Donna Shalala, Stan Eikenberry, and others. And we were 72% um, male, 28% female. Today, that number is 5149. And it didn't come at the expense of, of, of male athletes. We have the same number of male athletes we did then. It came by, uh, by creating 2,500 new opportunities and many new teams. And it didn't come free either. Uh, it, it came through the monetization of a variety of things, including football and basketball. In 1989, our model was predicated on 98% of the revenues coming from two sports to support all of the other sports. 20 years later, 98% of the revenue comes from two sports to provide opportunities for everyone else. In 1989, scholarship costs were $31 million. Today, scholarship costs are $109 million. That money is not coming from the general fund. That money is coming from externally derived revenue streams. Um, I would also say, you know, I'm a proud graduate of the University of North Carolina graduated 19 years before the Knight Commission was founded in 1989. And it was a largely a white male enterprise. It is no longer a white male enterprise. And so uh, much has changed um, um, even between today and 1989. Technology has continued to evolve. The internet has continued to move forward. ESPN was founded in 79. It wasn't a significant force in 89, but is a very significant force today. They can basically buy any sports property they choose to buy, simply because their business model is, is able to uh, generate uh, fees to, to, to do that. Um, and they continue to be interested in certain institutions, in certain sports. And uh, that is a reality, and it's a reality that every president, athletic director, and commissioner lives with every day. Um, Early on, um, you know, we've, we've uh, since, since you were founded, we've gone through a small recession and a big recession, a tech boom and a tech bust, as well as a real estate boom and a real estate bust. Um, what I see happening on our campuses during these uh, periodic ups and downs in the economy is people pull back a little bit. But inevitably, the economy comes back, consumer spending comes back, corporate investment comes back. I think Neil in 1989 spoke to you and, and suggested that by the year 2000 we would be down to one network. Well, by 2000 we had seven networks and we had a variety of cable companies. And so predictions are not easy to predict. Uh, I think Peter's assessment is correct. I don't remember making that prediction. Well, I have it in my clip file. I have it in my clip file, but I didn't bring it with you. I'll share a copy with you when I get back to the office. But in any event, and you'll have your time here, eight minutes. <laughs> but in any event, a lot has changed. Um, I, I can tell you that cutting costs um, 
is, especially at the national or conference level, is heavy lifting. It is a contact sport. And whether you're a president, a commissioner, or an athletic director, unless you're prepared to deal with boosters, board members, power coaches, and the public, and I'm talking about in a, in a, in a conflict-rich environment, don't take it on. Um, I've taken it on a couple times and we've had small successes, but I found it much easier to generate revenue than to cut expenses. That's an honest statement. And I've been in rooms with football coaches by myself and basketball coaches by myself, and they're good friends, but they don't move easily. And um, the, the, the reality is the ability to bring change at a campus or in a conference is difficult. The reality is it's difficult to do it across the board at the NCAA level because the NCAA does some things pretty well, but they tend to be lower common denominator type of creation of standards rather than really moving the needle on expenses and costs. They simply are not good at that. Um, I, I don't know uh, that, that, relatively speaking, they aren't pretty good at it because uh, the revenue sharing that the NCAA engages in is, uh, is, is significant. Even within the BCS, as much criticism as it's taken, it moves uh, tens of millions of dollars from one group of institutions to another who, who on their own would not be able to maintain that kind of market position. When I look at Harvard or Yale and their um, endowments, I do not see money moving to Haverford or Hofstra. <laughs> I don't even see a discussion of the movement of money from major endowments to smaller endowments. They compete for students, and I know that the, made, the last economic downturn that we experienced did great damage to endowments around the country and to private institutions around the country because the extent to which they've leveraged their operations through income from endowments, and that's created some real disconnects. And, and perhaps they shouldn't have counted on the continuing growth of endowments to subsidize operations at the 5 and 10 and 15 percent level. So I think we are part of the uh, enterprise. I think we've done some interesting things in the last 20 years, largely as a result of the impetus and the cultural changes brought about and suggested by this group. And if I could identify a couple things that we should feel good about. Um, I, I won't go through a laundry list, but I'll send to this group the efforts at integrating intercollegiate athletics into the university through certifications, through audits, through direct reports into the provost's office, through compliance audits. Uh, these things are real, they've had an impact, and they're done largely, uh, I think, through presidential leadership and uh, much of the focus brought by this group. Uh, the equity um, for women in athletics has been an astounding revolution, and it's happened pretty quickly. It didn't happen for 20 years, and it's happened significantly over the last 20 years in, in the major institutions, but not without a cost. It's an ex expensive proposition. Um, access for minorities is improved. It was a white male enterprise 15 years or so before this group was founded in many parts of the country. A lot of progress has been made in that area. There's been increased transparency. We're just trying to get the metrics right because we, we, can't, we can't get the metrics right. But I think that's probably true institution to institution, not only in intercollegiate athletics, but in other areas. And then I think that we've done a nice job of increasing the continuing progress rules for student athletes. Now, where, where have we fallen short in terms of educational values and where might we make some improvements? My, I have concern about the failure 
of, inf of the enforcement program. Uh, in 1987, the death penalty was delivered to SMU. I think it was a stand-up statement by the NCAA that it didn't want to see corruption of the level playing field, the rules governing recruitment. And I think we've had ebbed and flowed. And I think we've had more ebbing than flowing in this area over the last decade. Um, I think that we've really struggled, obviously, in controlling growth. We don't have an efficient method of controlling growth. And most corporate want to see corruption of the level playing field, the rules governing recruitment. And I think we've had ebbed and flowed. And I think we've had more ebbing than flowing in this area over the last decade. Um, I think that we've really struggled, obviously, in controlling growth. We don't have an efficient method of controlling growth. In most corporations, uh, the bottom line is the, um, is, is the God. Uh, it, is, it is a return to shareholder. Here it's return to stakeholder. And stakeholders' interests are unlimited. Let me just tell you, they are unlimited. Whether it's track and field, soccer, um, facilities, football coaches, basketball coaches, the stakeholder desire never abates. I think that um, we honestly have to, you know, deal with the fact that these um, institutions are founded locally. Uh, they're in markets. They have followings. They have student bodies. Some of them have student bodies of half a million people. Some of them have been around for 150 years. Others are municipal institutions with far fewer alumni, far fewer, uh, far fewer uh, uh, givers, alumni. And what they tend to do, to be honest with you, is leverage institutional resources to build institutional brand. They're using intercollegiate athletics to drive uh, institutional uh, branding in, in, uh, in that community. And I think, um, I don't think any legislation in the world is gonna change that, but that's how they choose to spend their money in order to advance their institutional purpose. I think that we've watered down, to be honest with you, seriously watered down and need to address uh, the um, initial eligibility rules. I know why it was done, and I think it's done nothing but introduce more students who are less capable of moving through it and have impacted the outcomes and in the process I hear from our alumni directors because whether we like it or not, the NCAA does set um, initial eligibility rules and for highly recruited athletes in football and basketball, they tend to be proxies for special admission. And that, and as our institutions get better, puts tremendous pressure on them, I think that needs uh, to be addressed. And then the last thing, and I'm really pleased that Miles and David Stern have addressed this, and that is a, an effort to come together and try to create some structure around the, the youth basketball environment and culture. That's an important area to try to get some structure around. Um, and so um, I think I'm glad that's been addressed and identified. So um, these are some comments. I appreciate the opportunity to make them. Thank, thank you. you, Jim. Neil? Well, thank you and good morning. Uh, thank you, Jim, for that introduction uh, on uh, my prediction from 1989. <laughs> you know, as I think about it, uh, if I said it, I'm not far off. The major driver for college athletics in the United States today is ESPN ABC. Uh, while CBS has the, uh, the college basketball tournament and does a lot of regular season, Broadcast television is very fragile compared to where ESPN is today. And uh, looking down the road, 
uh, it's one of the issues that I think uh, uh, is going to impact uh, college athletics. Uh, I'm either batting cleanup here or hitting ninth, so let me move through uh, my remarks pretty quickly. I know that you uh, would like to ask questions of us, and I can see that time is fleeting. Uh, just a couple of historical points. Uh, commercialism in college sports, uh, as we all know, is, is not new. It's not a new issue. In fact, I think it's accelerating at an enormous pace. I did speak to the NCAA President's Commission in 1988 on just the topics we are talking about today. And at that time, I quoted a report uh, from the Carnegie uh, Commission on College Athletics that expressed grave concern about commercialism and how it was uh, uh, destroying the honesty and, and integrity of college athletics. And that report was dated 1929. So we are dealing with uh, a long-range issue, one that hasn't gone away. And frankly, it's one that I don't think we want to go away. Um, commercialism reflects the taste and the appetite and the interest of the American public. When we look at why we're here today and why television has become such a huge and dominant force and why television can fund these enormous payments uh, for the basketball tournament, for college football, and for the BCS, we need to understand that television is simply a huge mirror. We reflect the American public's interest in college athletics. Uh, we don't sit in New York, uh, I didn't when I was running CBS, and decide what the American public should watch or ought to watch. We tested, we probed, we did our research, and we found out what they wanted to watch, and we gave it to them. And that's the business of television. We sell our audiences to our advertisers. And college football and college basketball have to be, uh, happen to be honeypots. We collect audiences on an enormous scale. And I did some research just the past couple of weeks about television ratings uh, in, in October 2009. On Saturday, October 10th, the national games on television and cable on Saturday alone was an 18.8 rating, which is basically 20% of the country was watching college television on that date. That doesn't include regional games. It doesn't include local games. The next week, the cumulative rating was a 20. And if you include ESPN's games on Thursday night and Wednesday night, that rating was a 24. Again, 24 is 24% of the nation's homes watching college football. If you include regional, local, syndicated, I would estimate that college football rating is probably well over 30, could be 35% of the American homes is watching college football on, on that date. Now, before you get too excited, I would also have to tell you that uh, professional football uh, last Sunday uh, generated a 63.4 rating, cumulative. But what this does tell you is that that rating plus the college football rating basically Every home in the country, statistically, was watching football uh, last weekend. That speaks to all of the issues that we're here to talk about today. Uh, one of the themes that I've 
spoken about many times over the last 35 or 40 years, has been the huge social value of television money. And I'm probably the only one in the country that talks about it like that, but I also at one time was probably the fellow who wrote more checks uh, for television money for college sports uh, than anyone else in our industry. Uh, television money is money that you earn. The college community earns it in a hugely competitive environment with dozens of other sports chasing the same dollar. It's money the colleges don't have to generate from state legislatures, from parents, from alumni, from the students. And it's money that is paid to the colleges with no strings attached. It's, it's not an issue for television whether you use the billions that we pay for coaches' salaries, building new chemistry dorms, building a new athletic facility. We're agnostic, we're neutral. But we only pay it to the college community because you've earned it. In the hugely competitive culture in which we live, college athletics remains an extraordinarily important entertainment and sports value to the American public. And again, we sell that public to our advertisers and sponsors, and that's how our business operates. The challenge for colleges, and I'm going to cut short my remarks somewhat so that we can get to your questions. The real challenge for the universities and for colleges in our, in our culture is how to manage success. That is really what we're talking about here. We wouldn't be gathered here if, if we weren't dealing with hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in revenues. And the challenge has been over the years what to do with that money, how to spend it wisely, and uh, oftentimes while television is viewed as the culprit, uh, in fact we are simply the facilitator, uh, passing along funds that are generated uh, by, by our public and by our viewers. Uh, the examples of accelerated commercialism aren't simply limited to television. I, I was struck by John's note about sitting in the Atlanta airport and wondering about getting a jet plane. Well, it's happening, only it's not a jet. The New York Times had an article just the past couple of weeks, helicopters clatter carries powerful recruiting message. At least eight programs are using helicopters now to ferry the, the, the coaches around to high school games. And uh, as the games are progressing, you have this whirly bird setting down, and by God, it's the, uh, it's the coach from, I think in this particular case, Missouri or UCLA. Uh, the New York Yankees, the Dallas Cowboys, and IMG, the world's largest sports marketing company, recently announced a new venture to provide services regarding seat licenses, suite sales, preferred seating, merchandising and licensing for the college community. Uh, Kansas, California introduced equity seat licenses. Uh, we talked about the helicopter. We've talked about a pack that's being created to, uh, to raise money to fight against the BCS, and BCS officials are considering hiring an advocate to speak for the BCS. This is all going on uh, as, as part of a cultural uh, fire hose of interest in, in this sport. Uh, 
What can TV do? How can we uh, shape the, the discussion? I come from that, that, uh, that business of television. Uh, I like to say that when I joined CBS, I had one boss. Uh, those of you in the college community have dozens of people that you have to, and groups that you have to account to. I had to work for Larry Tisch. I used to come in in the morning, uh, and he was the person I had to satisfy. Uh, at the time, I could look uh, uh, Len Elmore and, and Tom in the eye, uh, but as the years progressed, uh, I, I got shorter and shorter, my hair got grayer and grayer, but nothing compared to the pressures on college presidents today. Uh, I, I certainly will concede that. But what you need to understand about television, and this will help shape your debate, and then I'll, I'll, we'll go on to questions. Television is not gonna subsidize the sharing concept that we have talked about today. We don't have an interest in our industry uh, in spending dollars on schools and institutions that cannot generate audiences for us. Uh, it is our business to provide, as I said, viewers to, viewers to sponsors and advertisers. And unfortunately, uh, not because they're bad people or because they're, <clears throat> they're unworthy, uh, the smaller, Division I schools, and I still refer to them as Division I, II, and III, and certainly Division II and III schools simply cannot draw audiences for our television, for network television, and for national cable television. That doesn't mean that our technology isn't now providing for opportunities for them to have their games distributed. Uh, if perhaps by uh, webcasting, uh, perhaps on the smaller cable channels, which basically don't fund uh, the, the large expenditures that the ESPNs and CBSs uh, can afford. But if you move away from the current formula, I have to not put you on notice, but I have to advise that television is not going to be able to subsidize that move. We are still going to be interested in the big schools, the big institutions, the national programs, that provide viewers for our sponsors and advertisers. And, and that's a dilemma that you, you need to understand and, and you will inevitably face, that the subsidy will have to come from the bigger schools to the smaller schools. And in my business, and I'll close on this point, fortunately or unfortunately, we never dealt with the words ought and should. Words of moral obligation in television were really more revenue-driven, profit-driven, uh, audience-driven, ratings-driven. If the audience would watch it and we could sell it, we put it on the air. And our experience over the last 40 or 50 years is that big-time, quote, big-time college athletics, we can, we can produce it, we can sell it. We have never been able to do that for smaller athletic programs. And the reasons are self-evident. Uh, Bowling Green and Wittenberg and Worcester and, and the smaller schools throughout the United States, Hamilton College, where I had the uh, joy of going to, no one really cares on a national level whether you win or lose. On the other hand, when you look at the large institutions and the 
schools that can put 80 to 110,000 people together on a Saturday afternoon. Those schools are meaningful and we will pay and continue to pay uh, for the privilege of carrying those games. So the, the, the real challenge here is managing the success of the total venture and then uh, where I can't help very much is how do you divide up the pie? That, that is ultimately what we're going to be talking about, what you're going to be talking about. And uh, I can provide advice and counsel, but uh, that's a dilemma that uh, uh, I'm afraid television can't help you with. Neil, thank you uh, very much. We're not going to vote you off the island at this moment. Okay. I want you to know that. We do want you to stay and uh, uh, engage us in some uh, dialogue. So let's, uh, let's start with Chuck. Well, this is not going to be a question. It's going to be a comment, and I, I, I fear it's going to be an extended comment. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think Jim made a, made a very important point. I was going to talk about something at some point in time, and he's made it, uh, I think, very useful to talk about it now. When he said, I found it a lot easier to raise revenue rather than to cut expense. And that's the history of the NCAA, and that's the history of inter collegiate athletics. I can't remember what year it was, but it must have been about 1971 or 72. I was a little younger back then. When I went to a, an NCAA convention, the purpose of which was to deal with the financial crisis. And uh, a lot of us came in with suggestions about cutting costs. And as I recall, there was one cost-cutting mm. action taken, and that was to uh, pass a rule that you could not provide sport coats, blazers, to teams, uh, um, uh, football teams, basketball teams, or other teams when they traveled. I, I think that was the only thing that was done. Well, what the problem is that we have been running a race in which no one is willing to cut costs. Everyone just keeps on increasing costs and, and decides that we have to do whatever we must do in order to raise the revenues to cover those costs. And I don't blame uh, Neil, I don't blame, and I've said on several occasions, people blaming television or blaming the networks, the networks are not to blame, it's the presidents who are to blame for the over-commercialization. Now, you know, uh, and, and I, 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 it, it, has, it has run into everything we're doing. Um, everything now has to be named for a sponsor. Uh, uh, the, the most, the, the most um, ridiculous thing that we have done, and we have talked about it here, but we haven't been able to do anything about it, is that while for many years the NCAA came down very hard on any athlete who kind of in a casual way got his picture taken and somehow it appeared in the newspaper. And now we are having those pictures taken, or letting those pictures be taken, and letting their jerseys and their 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 own uh, vision uh, uh, visage be put into characters that are on games, and why? Before it was the student who might be making some money off this, and that was bad. Now it's the schools that are making the money in the NCAA. Um, we at some point in time we've got to make a decision that. Things have gotten out of hand. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the list of seven that Dutch mentioned, all except for the, uh, 
the uh, uh, one dealing with current technology uh, are items that have been before us time and time again. We have said, and I've argued for, uh, uh, eliminating the 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 non the 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 uh, non-traditional period for baseball, the non-traditional traditional period for other things, eliminating, cutting down on travel, cutting down on the numbers of scholarship, time and time again. Nobody will ever adopt those, the, the, those provisions, in my opinion. Uh, uh, I'm glad to see that they're, I guess I'm glad to see that they're coming up again for review, but I don't think they're going to. Um, you, you mentioned uh, uh, cutting back on the, uh, the, the, the number of support people per sport. Look at the, when I think you also mentioned, or uh, or maybe it was Gene who mentioned the number of, of coaches. Look at basketball. I, I remember when basketball was pretty good. As a matter of fact, I had I was managing a place that had some pretty good basketball. And there were two coaches on the bench. Now there there are more people in suits than there are in in, in basketball uniforms. And when you call timeout, the coaches have to get together and huddle, so they know what to talk to the players about. There used to be a time when the coaches huddled with the players. Um, and I'm down on the football field when I go to games. I started this about 1964 for the second half of every, every game. The numbers of people down there that are being paid by somebody <laughs> is absolutely astronomical. There are there, there used to be a, you know, a, 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 a team doctor and maybe a trainer or a couple of trainers helpers. Now there must, there's a core of trainers, or a core of doctors. There are uh, uh, um, if, uh, people down there who are clogging up the sidelines so that you can't even see what's going on. Uh, and and uh, we, we've just got to stop the, 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 the um, constant increases in expenditures, which then lead to a necessity to increase revenues, which uh, has, has and, and, and then whatever revenues that are received have to be spent. Uh, and um, I, I hope that, that, that we will come out of this at least with some recommendation or some understanding that that's the issue that we're having to resolve. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, I think one difference I would point out, and I, I, I was in a lot of those conversations about cost cutting uh, with you, I, I do think it's significant that the athletic directors are making these recommendations at this time. In the past, it was presidents and others uh, putting them forward, and maybe there was some resistance from the ADs, but the, the real impetus here is coming from the ADs, which I take as a very encouraging sign. Henry. Well, first I want to assure Neil that the big programs will not subsidize um, somebody else, particularly from the data that we've seen earlier this morning where many of those same big programs are losing money. So I think the notion that um, we're going to have sharing of revenues is uh, not on the, on the table. And I've worked with Jim for 15 years, and I admire him greatly. But maybe I'm going to disagree with him a little bit on one point. I'm not sure I ever did in 15 years of serving on the, on the, as a Big Ten president. And I actually think, and it comes to Chuck's point a little bit, that something has changed. It's true that economies wax and wane. And uh, all university presidents, by the way, as you well know, prefer to raise revenue, and not just for athletics, rather than to cut. Cut's tough. 
uh, you take on somebody when you cut, whatever the constituency is. It's not fun. I closed a dental school. I had to go to Wisconsin for dental care. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's not, not something you, know, you like to do. Um, but I think, Jim, that structurally speaking, even when this economy comes back, and it will come back, it's probably coming back already, that there's a structural change in higher education. If you look at the publics, there's no easy way to see that public funding for higher education is going to be buoyant given all the deficits which are there. Even if you look at the great pri uh, private endowments, and I had the seventh or eighth biggest endowment in the country, um, something's got to be coming out of your budget for some foreseeable future in order to put this change in the endowments and get more liquidity in your endowments. I, I think we're, we're at a, ch I, I hate to say it's different because the world tends to repeat itself, but I think for some foreseeable future, maybe a decade, we're in a period of stringency on university budgets, both public and private. And with that said, it comes to the, the point someone quoted uh, Rahm Emanuel earlier that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. We ought to be making these reforms because it's, some of these things are just ridiculous in terms of the video people and the this or that. When you negotiate with a new contract with your coach, you're negotiating about the video guys and the this one and the that one. So irrespective of whether we're going to get into flusher times or not, we ought to try to make some of the changes because they're sensible in their own right as well as saving money. And I, it comes back to what I also said earlier. Those changes can be made, but they can't be made unit by unit. No university can do it by itself, and probably no conference can do it by itself. So it's got to be done, to my mind, at the NCA level. And there's a precedent for doing that, because we've had a precedent in changing things. It's not going to be coaches' salaries, as we discussed. But it can be the number of scholarships. It can be the number of operations people. It can be the number of folks that huddle on a basketball or a volleyball uh, court as well. So I think that this is the time to try to do it. And it's a real role. And the Knight Commission has historically played this leadership role. And it, can, it really holds people's attention and can hold people's feet to the fire to some extent in this time, Jim. So, I think it's the time is to strike. Am I completely optimistic? No, that would be fatuous to be optimistic. But I think if you don't try concertedly now, you really have passed up a crisis, and that's a big mistake. Neil, did you want to add a comment? Just a quick comment uh, in support of what you're saying. Uh, television sells competition and exciting sports events to the public. Uh, if the level of competition of college football, for example, remains the same, and instead of 10 coaches, you have six. Don't listen to the argument that, oh my goodness, television's gonna you know, move somewhere else with its cameras and its money. Uh, NASCAR is a great example. For 50 years, they tried to limit the technology of the, en of the engines just to keep the cost down and to keep the cars together. So they all spent less and delivered the same quality product. And I think college sports can do that without damaging the quality of the product or even if the quality went down 3% because you no longer had videographers, nobody will notice. 
So I think you have a license to do exactly what you're talking about. Sorry to intervene again, but would the quality of football go down if you had 70 or 75 scholarships? In the, I don't think so. If you look at the number of people who start as freshmen or red-shirted freshmen, and then who finish up as seniors at the end of the year who are still playing football, it's not that big in terms of the cohort who came in. I don't think you'd affect the quality for television or anything else if you continued to go down the number of scholarships. Tom and then Lynn. <clears throat> I have a, a what-if question for uh, Neil and uh, Jim. If in 1984 the minority had won the Supreme Court decision and the NCAA's monopoly was preserved and they had listened to Wizard White in his dissenting position, which he predicted most of what's happening today, and that there was an all-powerful NCAA that was created. Today, albeit controlled by presidents, uh, they were negotiating all television contracts. You didn't have the SEC and the ACC and Notre Dame doing their thing, much like the United States Olympic Committee that has all power over television contracts involving uh, U.S. Olympic rights. Would we be in a different situation today? With the presidents, maybe we could have had more breadth of programs, Maybe even coaches' salaries could have been mitigated under this all-powerful banner. Um, maybe we might have had more money. I mean, if you follow history and Andrew Carnegie and John Rockefeller, when you have a monopoly seller, in fact, maybe you do end up with more money. If that's the only place that ESPN and ABC and all the other networks can go to, maybe college sports would even have more money today if we had not had that decision made in 1984. So... That's my question. Uh, Jim, you go ahead, and then I'll. Uh, I have, uh, it's a it's a great question. I, the only problem is, I think we both need about an hour to uh, to respond to it. I think it's a it is a good question. Uh, you know, I would I would say that there was a predecessor event that was an interesting one. That was in 1960, when um, the NFL went to Washington, and on behalf of itself and the other pro leagues, were able to obtain an antitrust exemption. And the colleges uh, came in a day or two later, and the only thing they wanted was protection on Saturday, and they never got it because they didn't think they needed it. But ultimately, you know, we, we ate our own young. We sued ourselves. No pun intended, Chancellor Young, but we did, we, we did eat ourselves on that one. And it actually took, you know, if you go study and looking at the revenue development in college football, we probably quadrupled the number of games on, and we lost 50 percent. Exactly right. 50% of the revenues. And so it took a full decade from 84 to 94 to get back to parity. Now, once that happened, there's been tremendous growth from, from 94 to today. Um, in, in, my, in my own view, college sports is undervalued. It, it's an incredible, um, uh, it's an incredible content. I also think that if, if Oklahoma and Georgia hadn't sued the NCAA, there would have been other lawsuits simply because of the growth of technology, the independent stations, the cable entities, and there's no way you could have limited um, the number of games the way the NCAA was attempting to limit the number of games. You had internet, you had cable, you had local cable, you had seven. So I think eventually the lawsuit would have come and who knows how it would have been decided. The other thing I would just mention is that college basketball has always been locally managed by institutions. So that would have never been sort of caught up in the uh, NCAA controls. But I think it's a great question. and and uh, whether or not it would have um, led to more antitrust exemption uh, on the coaches' salaries is just hypothetical. So, yeah. I would say just briefly, uh, we predicted when the lawsuit 
was brought that we could we could drive down the rights fees by 50% because instead of having one seller and multiple buyers all of a sudden you had multiple sellers and multiple buyers and that's exactly what happened we played the big 10 pac 10 off against the CFA and continued to do that the biggest challenge to giving you a, a, a complete answer is that our world has changed so dramatically in the last 25 years and the, the platforms for distribution have changed so much and the opportunities for exposure have changed so much. I doubt that the NCAA today could, could regulate and sell college football and generate the kind of revenues that the multiple conferences and the multiple uh, platforms are generating today. Uh, that doesn't mean, that's not an answer for a college football playoff but it is an answer for the sport of college football itself. So I think in the short run, you definitely took a hit, college took a hit in terms of rights fees. In the long run, uh, I think the sport of college football probably is generating more money today than an administrator could have done sitting in Indianapolis over the last 25 years. Lynn? Thank you, Britt. <clears throat> Actually, it's, it's nice to follow Tom. I've been following him for 40 years. So. <laughs> whether playing basketball or whatever. But um, I, let me step back a little bit and, and, and rather than focus on, on television and, and, and the, you know, the rights of uh, uh, information and technology, but just broaden it for a second. It, it, am I getting this wrong? And maybe I can get your opinion. Are we saying that commercialism is inherently bad or it's not inherently a bad thing? I mean, because to me, it's how the commercialism operates. You know, when it adversely affects the student-athlete experience, then it's a bad thing. When it obscures the differentiation from the pro sports model, then it's a bad thing. When the competition and the games are, are kind of altered beyond recognition for the sake of commercialism, then it's a bad thing. But exploiting revenue uh, isn't a bad thing if it benefits the student-athlete experience. And I use the thing, we talked about video games as an example. You know, if there's a balance of equities, there, where student athletes can benefit some way, shape, or form, you know, where they can make informed decisions, where they can, um, you know, by permission, participate. Why is that? Why is that such a bad thing? Um, be, uh, excluding the things that I spoke of that, that are good things. I mean, in the end, it's still about the student athlete experience. And Henry, when you talk about reducing scholarships, it's still about the student athlete experience. If you take 75, take it down to 75, there are 10 kids who aren't going to have that experience. If we can afford it, why not? I was just. I don't think I don't think that commercialism is bad uh, per se. I don't think commercialism is bad per se. I don't think fundraising is bad per se. I don't think ads in a program are bad per se. I don't think radio is bad per se. I mean, there's certain assumptions. We live in a certain kind of country. We have a certain amount of interest. And I think the notion that all commercialism is bad is, is not a valid notion. I think if we look through the lens of a Division I athletics director, they would agree completely. It's, it's a necessity, but there is a limit. Yeah, I think you characterized it well, and so did Jim. We've got uh, Anita, Doug, and Hotting uh, for a question. I think that will probably bring us to the end of our session. So, Anita. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I was thinking about this in terms of the value to the athlete um, and uh, the, per the coach's salary. And I was thinking about what could be done within the coach's contract at some point, perhaps to mitigate the rising cost and the eventual 
arms race uh, end in uh, nuclear war, whatever happens at the end of an arms race in education. Could the, an athlete say at, a uh, student athlete at uh, Notre Dame, experience with the expensive coach the same as the uh, expensive coach, the student's athlete at, say, USC? And uh, how could the control on the athlete's experience based on what the coach brings, could that help control the amount that's being paid to coaches? Gene Smith was talking about the uh, qualities he seeks when he recruits coaches uh, and recognizing that he has to pay what the market demands in order to bring in the coaches he desires. And as long as you're successful in getting that kind of coach, then I see no reason why the extreme compensation of that coach should reflect adversely on the experience of the student athlete. On the other hand, if the AD is not making decisions based on the right criteria, or the president's uh, enabling the AD to hire coaches just because they think they're going to win, even if they have to bend some rules, then that corrupts the entire process. So again, it's not that commercial values and educational values are irreconcilable. They're certainly not. They're compatible in lots of ways. But they do need to be thoughtfully integrated. They need to be managed well. We need to keep our sense of what counts, what really matters. And if the economics of the enterprise is elevated in scale, I don't think that necessarily adversely impacts the student athlete. We do have to be cautious about the fact, though, that there's a limit to how far this can go. And we need to be conscious of the potentially adverse consequences if things go badly. Remember that our students are, are intelligent young men and women who can see what the, the lessons of the current uh, American culture uh, tell him or her. That is to say, the marketplace is working. Commercial values are not, in their views, uh, negative. Only if they ultimately develop adverse consequences will that become retrospectively apparent. I, I agree with that. Uh, there's a dichotomy that exists within uh, contractual terms in a coach's contract. One side is all the compensation presence, but we're seeing more contracts today that provide, that, that include provisions that identify the coach's direct impact on the welfare of the student athlete, uh, their involvement in programs to support the student athlete, uh, going to class, academics, on and on and on. It's a pretty broad landscape, and that's now becoming not only part of the contract, but it's clearly part of the evaluation process. Okay, Doug? Neil, I believe you said in your opening comments that the TV money comes with no strings attached. Yes. I believe that there are a number who would argue that there's a very significant string that is attached, and that it has to do with what time oh, and what day, I, and that that impacts both the student experience as absolutely. well as the fans' enjoyment. Absolutely, and I'm glad you asked that question because I've been asked that question thousands of times over the last 25 years. What we do with college sports, with the NBA, with the NFL, uh, you name the sport, is we say, look, we'd like you to play at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock on Thursday night. Uh, and we'll pay you a half a million dollars a game if, if you would please do that. If you don't want to play on Thursday night, you are under no obligation to do so. But of course, we can't give you the $500,000. So we don't tell Major League Baseball 
to start the games at 8.45 at night. We don't tell the college world you've got to play on Tuesday night. We only say, if you do, we'll pay you X. And if you don't, we'll either find someone else who will or we'll pay you Y. That is how television, quote, manipulates sports. We simply say it has a certain value at a certain time. Sounds like a string. Sounds like, I'm sorry. Sounds like a string. A string is attached. No, no, no. It's your decision. Well, it's an obvious uh, issue because you're much more valuable to ESPN. That's how ESPN's seven nights a week of college football started. They found out the public wanted to watch football on Saturdays. Great. Then they said, well, gee, maybe the public would like to watch on Fridays. And they tested it. And the public supported it. Two and three rating points. Then how about Wednesday night? And they found teams that would play Wednesday night. Tuesday night, Monday night. But all along, no one at ESPN is saying you must do that. We're only saying if you would like to have another half a million dollars, you know, maybe over a period of time, it's several million dollars a year, we'd like you to play on Monday night and kick off at 8 o'clock. I don't believe that's a string. That is simply a condition to the deal reflecting the economics of the, of, the, of the transaction itself. Now, of course, that's my perspective. <laughs> I, I would be the first to concede that. But the college president, the commissioner, the, the president of the American League, they all have the right to say no. I, I, if I could just add one thing to that, and I, I think it's maybe something that goes unnoticed. But um, on the commercialism side and on that aspect of commercialism that some people find uh, invasive or distasteful. Uh, so, some people find playing Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night distasteful because it interrupts the academic schedule and it, and it, it casts, it, mis, it misplaces priorities. And, and the reality is, is that there are some conferences that have enough leverage in the marketplace to say no and still be paid. And so, for example, uh, we have agreements with CBS, ABC, and ESPN, but we don't play on Thursday because we can afford not to pay, because they're still going to pay us to play on Saturday. But those who don't have the market power to play on Saturday have a choice to play on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yes or no. We have an agreement with Fox for an owned network. There's no beer advertising. There's a commitment to e equity and equality in, in sports. There's no infomercial, and there's university programming. That only comes about because of a power in the marketplace. And so as, as each of these contracts is completed, whether it's a sponsorship agreement, a television agreement, an own network, it's totally market sensitive. And the less power you have in the marketplace, call it a string or a condition. You want to call it a string, you want to call it a condition of an agreement. The reality is if you don't have leverage in the marketplace, you're not going to be able to control how your brand is presented to the American And I public. believe there are conferences who have found the Tuesday night, Wednesday night telecast to be beneficial, getting a national exposure, uh, creating an opportunity to show their product uh, to, the, to the American public. Uh, all I can tell you is I believe there's a waiting list of conferences that would love to play on ESPN on Tuesday nights. How didn't you get the uh, last question? I'm overwhelmed. The, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing, it's Doug's question, because, of course, we took the $500,000 the other night, which allowed us to be whipped by Florida A&M, uh, A Florida State right in front of everybody. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that was required was that they send everybody home early uh, as staff members because this, 
incoming traffic, because we're in the middle of the campus with our stadium, was going to be conflicting with the outgoing traffic. And the staffs had to go home and give back the time some other way, or pay back, or had to take their time out of their time off, which led to an article in the Daily Tar Heel uh, going through the litany, a litany of complaints from staff, one of whom says, we figured out that we're an institution of athletes that participate in education so that we can participate in the ACC. Let me go to your question of the market. I love the reiteration that we are now in a market-driven institutional economy and that the market, in effect, it makes us do it. Uh, that we are living in an economically driven market economy, which reminds me of the genius of the people who brought our economy in this country to where it is right now, while being validated by very smart economists, at least one of whom is sitting near me, uh, during a period of gross and ultimately insane overreaching in the name of the market. I would suggest that where we are, we are there right now in higher education that we are in a essentially microcosm of the great macro thing we've just witnessed, which is letting you be driven by the false notion that you can't say no to the, Tom Lehrer wrote a song about your product, by the way. He called it a drug, but I mean, it was, you know, the amiable man who only offers you the product. It's not my problem if you take it. We're giving you the product that you can turn away if you want. Actually, Usually, it's a disaster that brings you to it uh, because, in fact, most people like the product, which is the acceleration of their stand upon a pile, which makes them seem to be, for the moment, the god of the moment. Put that aside. We speak of the smart young men and women who understand they live in a market economy. We speak of all the beneficiaries from this market economy in sports, which we're talking about. If they're as smart as you say they are, and as I think they are, tell me again why it is you're not paying them as a function of their participation in the market economy at a rate that any market economy would ordinarily reward the people who produce the product, i.e. the athletes themselves. What's the argument in the name of the market economy not educational values, which, as you said, of course, you have nothing to do with educational values. You only have to do with product. If it's only a matter of product and the market, then why aren't the kids getting paid? Well, I know it's why, but I mean, but I'm, I'm saying all I'm saying is, if the logic is so compelling in all the other fields, you give up principle, you give up positions that the university once said it stands for. If, for the cause of the market, all of that happens, why not the kids? Well, I'll say two things, and I know it's uh, the bewitching hour of lunchtime. Uh, probably two things right off the top of my head. Uh, one is they are getting paid. Excuse me. Uh, you mean they're getting scholarships? I, I, we put a lot of value in the fact they're receiving an education at a fine institution like yours. I think that that one would be a wonderful theory as you would suggest to anyone else who is out there working at what amounts to minimum wage in a market which is being driven by hundreds of millions of dollars. Come on. Yes, sir. The second part is just as valid, and, and I would say, and that is we've, we've actually uh, put a pencil to this 
uh, in, in a normal kind of situation, what would it cost? And uh, facing the circumstances we have today and the challenges we have today, it would just be absolutely impossible to do that. I mean, there's no other tap dance I, I can give you. It's just financially not feasible. May, may I jump in to, I, to I that response? I couldn't agree with you more, which, of course, is a tap dance that you lose with the coaches. Hotting, the, the, the question is not why are they not being paid. The question is what right do we have through the NCAA to put uh, constraints on their payment? And that's, that's a Sherman antitrust question. It really is. And if, it ever, if we ever reach the point where this is perceived to be a business with unrelated business income, then they are employees of the business. And the question of our right to regulate their compensation becomes gigantic. But we're not there yet, but we're getting close. Keep the rhetoric up. Keep the rhetoric and, up. And, and final Last point, part. final point, it, it wouldn't generate one more television dollar if you pay the athletes, so you're going to have to subsidize that as well. Don't expect television to pay any more money to pay the college athletes. You've made it very clear that the, <laughs> what the academic institution is doing is of no consequence to you, and I understand that. I have not made that. That's not what I said at all, sir. Okay, on that note, we are ready for lunch. Um, lunch is next door. Um, let, before we go, let's thank our panel. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission and to access its new website, College Sports 101, a primer on money, athletics, and higher education in the 21st century, visit www.knightcommission.org.